0: questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: In the period of 1968 to 1972, NASA claims to have sent nine missions to the moon, of which six allegedly landed astronauts on the lunar surface. This narrative has stood the test of time and is now almost universally recognized as being true. has been bolstered by a relentless propaganda exercised by NASA, by a partisan group of pro-NASA disciples, by many scientists, by academia, and incessantly reinforced by the mass media. So much so that it is now a part of our historical record. The truth is that it never happened. No astronauts ever trod on the lunar surface or ever ventured outside the Earth's protected magnetosphere. It is a detective story of epic proportions, but the evidence is there to prove this without any ambiguity. Finding that evidence of deceit has been a long painstaking effort by many dedicated researchers over the past 50 years. Researchers who have suffered the ignominy of being branded as heretics for even questioning the official record. So much so that investigating the evidence brands one as being a conspiracy theorist with all the negativity ...that such a title has come to mean. Tonight's discussion brings together the irrefutable evidence... ...that exposes the deceit. It cuts through the nefarious propaganda... ...and this information from the pro-NASA lobby... ...that has for years clouded the real issue. Five, four, three, two, one. Marcus Allen is the UK publisher of Nexus magazine... ...which he introduced to the UK and Europe in 1994... Nexus is the world's leading alternative news magazine, covering health, future science, hidden history, the unexplained, and UFOs. Nexus originates from Australia and is now sold in over 100 countries, including the USA and Canada. Marcus is now able to pursue his lifelong interest in the unexplained on a full-time basis. The moon landings and ancient Egypt are just two of the main taboo subjects he has investigated. New questions have been raised that have yet to be adequately answered. Marcus has appeared on many TV shows during the past 25 years to discuss the Apollo moon landing controversy. He has been interviewed on numerous national, local radio and online shows in the UK and in the USA. His presentations challenge the official story of men landing on the moon over 50 years ago. He asks anyone to prove him wrong when he claims that no human has landed on the moon.
2: You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have Rebounders, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas Seasons and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich.
1: His latest book is The Apollo Moon Hoax, The Real Evidence, A Reference Guide to the Facts. Directly from South London, England, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Marcus Alan. Hello, Mr. Allen, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
3: I'm very well, thank you, Mel. And I'm very honored to be on a guest on your show. You've had some spectacular guests in the last few years.
1: Thank you, as am I. May I call you Marcus?
3: Please call me Marcus, yes. Thank Everybody you. else does. Well,
1: this is one of those topics that I know is very controversial. I've been discussing it for years, and trust me. To all the listeners, I want to believe, I want to believe that we went to the moon. And I've been asking people for answers, but I'm not satisfied with any answer that I get. And every time I look out there for NASA or the ESA or the Chinese Space Agency for answers, I really, I just can't stop asking questions, Marcus. So I want to ask you, first of all, when did you become a moon landing skeptic?
3: Probably just over 30 years ago, um, I was attending a lecture in London, not about the moon or anything like that, it doing with megaliths, which, is, which I also like to look at. And the person doing the talk was presenting a lot of photographs, obviously of me- megaliths. And he said, almost in an offhand way, he said, of course, you've probably seen those photographs of men on the moon. He said, they're not real, they're fake." And I thought, what's he talking about? I mean, this is... 90, early 1990s. Now, I'm old enough to have been around when, when it actually happened. I stayed up in London where I was living and um, watched it happening. I even waved out the window. Nobody waved back, but never mind. <clears throat> so I, I believed that man had landed on the moon. I mean, I had no reason not to. So this, this gentleman saying that the photographs were faked, I thought, ah, oh, a wow, ridiculous idea. Now, I'd studied photography. I'd worked as a photographer in London in the 1960s. I'd used the Hasselblad camera that I subsequently found out that had been used on Apollo. I thought, well, I'll go and have a look at the pictures, and I'll see what I can work out. Because looking at a photograph, you can tell quite a lot about how it was taken, where it was taken, obviously, and the sort of equipment that was used, the lenses that were used. So I started looking for the pictures of Apollo landing on the moon. I had to go out to an astronomy show and buy a set of of postcards. It was the first I could find. There were obviously some in books and magazines. National Geographic was uh, a big publisher, publisher of Apollo photographs. And I looked at the photographs and I thought, yes, I can see what he's talking about. I can see why he might have doubts. And I started to have doubts about the photographs. And I started investigating Apollo. And the more I looked into it, the more questions arose. Because having studied photography, I know what cameras can and cannot do. And it's an important point at this stage in 2022, over 50 years after Apollo 11 allegedly landed on the moon, that they were using photographic film. They were not using digital cameras. They weren't invented until 1975. So they were all photographic film. Now, photographic film is a very good medium for recording information on That's why you use it in cameras. They were using um, black and white film. They were using color reversal film, otherwise known as transparencies, because they can produce some very, very good and accurate color rendition of the scene that they're photographing. And the more I looked at them, I thought, hang on a minute, there's a problem here. This camera, The Hasselblad camera, which is a very good camera made by Victor Hasselblad of Sweden, it had no viewfinder on the moon because, obviously, if you're wearing a space suit, which they presumably were, you can't get your head down close enough to the viewfinder, which is on top of the camera, to see what the scene is. So the viewfinder was removed. Then the shutter button to take the photograph is located on the front of the camera. All Hasselblad cameras are the same. They had a larger button because if you're wearing a spacesuit, you've got to wear the gloves as well. You can't wear half a spacesuit. <clears throat> so you've got these gloves, like heavy-duty gardening gloves. How do you know you've pressed the shutter? Because there's no sound in space, is there, we're told? Well, it's true, there isn't. So how do you know you've taken a photograph? There's a little dial on the side of the camera which tells you what how many photographs you've taken of the film you have in the camera, but you can't see that from inside a spacesuit either. Anyway, all these restrictions on use. I came to the conclusion that the photographs could not have been taken on the lunar surface, and it was many years later I discovered the proof of that, the proof that it couldn't have been taken on the lunar surface, and the proof became in another lecture I attended. I'm a member of the British Interplanetary Society, and a lecture was given by the a very nice gentleman named Phil Pressel, who was the uh, designer of the photographic equipment, the camera system used on the um, ha- the Hexagon spy satellite KH9. He was very proud of what he'd done. It was obviously it was highly technical, very classified at the time. It was declassified in 2011. <clears throat> which is why he was able to talk publicly about it Now he talked about it and in describing the photographic uh, equipment it was a stereo camera that, i.e. two cameras linked together to take stereo images so height could be determined when it was used as a 3D picture he was very proud of it <clears throat> and he said almost by, in passing he said well of course we had to pressurize all the film and the, and the camera equipment on the spacecraft and I thought What's he talking about? You've got to pressurize the, the spacecraft. The Hexagon spy satellite flew at about two hundred miles above the Earth to photograph what was going on in the Soviet Union. This is—it was first launched in nineteen sixty-nine. It was converted about ten years later to use digital equipment, but initially to use photographic film. And it's a very, very complex system of the film being transported from the huge six-foot diameter film reels. They were five-inch width film. So there was a huge amount of film in the on the spacecraft, the Hexagon spy satellite. It was transported through tubes, which had all been pressurized. And I thought, well, what's going on? Why do they have to pressurize photographic film in space? And I asked him that question. I said, would the same restrictions apply to Apollo? He said, of course they would.
1: We get disconnected every so often. You were saying about the the pressure in the camera.
3: Yes, pressure in the camera. Well, it's not the camera, it's the film that has to be pressurized. And what what we'd done was determined that photographic film is damaged in the pressure that we were able to produce in this vacuum chamber, which is relatively low. Now, it's important to know how vacuum is measured. Here on Earth, we... Exist in an atmosphere, and the pressure in the atmosphere is fourteen point seven pound per square inch at sea level, and the same at uh, measured in torr. Torr is the unit of vacuum. It's named after the uh, in, an Italian scientist who worked to develop the barometer in the seventeenth century. It, ah, you know what's happening? Is somebody trying to get a hold of you? Are you there, Mel?
1: I'm here. Can you hear me? Sorry, Marcus, please proceed. We keep getting disconnected, and I'm not surprised.
3: No, I'm not surprised at all. Obviously, a lot of people are listening in. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Whoever you are.
1: I hope they're learning something.
3: Well, I hope they are, but maybe, maybe they don't want to learn it. Anyway, let's carry on, because uh, I think we were describing how I first became interested in looking into this subject and why there could possibly be more to it than We were being told and I said, I was trained as a photographer. I know what cameras can and cannot do. I'd used the Hasselblad camera. I've used it professionally. I've used it uh, socially, so I knew what it could do. It's a very, very good camera, but it's not easy to use. It was never designed originally to be handheld. It was originally designed as an aircraft camera. Uh, doing aerial photography during World War II, and it was developed from that. It was adopted by a lot of photographers because the lens made by Zeiss in Germany, the lens is so good that people liked the quality of the pictures that was taken on the Hasselblad camera. So it was eventually chosen to be used on Apollo to record the scenes. Now, I became interested in space travel quite an early day, and I became specifically interested in the Apollo missions because obviously that is space travel with humans following President John Kennedy's announcement in May 1961 to land a man on the moon before the decade is out and return him safely to the Earth. So NASA got on with the business of doing that. Of course, at that point, they hadn't even put a man into orbit. Uh, they were rather startled when the Soviet Union put Yuri Gagarin into orbit, Uh Alan Shepard was the first American to go up into space. He just went straight up and came straight down again. John Glenn was the first American to orbit the Earth a year later. So they had a lot of catching up to do, and they had to get the rockets to to launch. Anyway, they obviously did it because we all saw the, the most famous launch, Apollo 11, July 1969. And I watched that, and I was very impressed by it and I watched the landing on the Moon, uh, July 24th, I think it was. Anyway, July the 20th, four days after the launch, land on the Moon, get out, walk around, talk to the President, collect some rocks, put a flag up and get back again. They were on the lunar surface for 21 hours in total. On the surface, walking around, they were on it for just over 2 hours, 20 minutes. So it was a relatively short mission, this one. But there were a few photographs. There's a famous series of photographs taken in what's referred to now as Magazine 40. It just happened to be an arbitrary number. There weren't 40 magazines taken on the mission. There were only about three. But this was identified as Magazine 40. And there are 121 photographs taken on the lunar surface by the named astronauts, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Interestingly, there is no photograph, identifiable photograph, of Neil Armstrong. They're all taken of Buzz Aldrin by Neil Armstrong. And there is a a, a series of photographs. There are eight photographs in total in a series on this magazine. They're, they're all still photographs. And it's showing Buzz Aldrin coming out of the lunar lander, the eagle, coming down the ladder onto the lunar surface. And... As a photographer, I know that you look at photographs in sequence and you can tell what the photographer is trying to achieve by the series of photographs that he takes, usually called a contact sheet. It's just looking at the photographs taken in sequence. These are all photographs on photographic film. So I looked at these particular eight photographs. They're all in sequence and they show Buzz Aldrin climbing out of the lander, coming down the ladder onto the lunar surface, but in the middle of this, in the middle of this sequence, there are two photographs, one of the lunar lander footpad itself, and the other of the rubbish bag that they just chucked out of the lunar lander before they got out. I'm thinking, how minute, why would they do that? Why would they, because they could do it at any time. They didn't need to do it in the middle of this sequence. Obviously, Neil Armstrong, who was taking the photographs, got bored watching Buzz Aldrin climbing down the ladder or trying to, and decided to photograph the footpad and the rubbish bag. Now, looking at those photographs, you can tell where the sun is, assuming it's the sun we're looking at as the light source. You can see where the sun is, it's behind the lander. So Buzz Aldrin's activity are all taking place in shadow, the shadow of the lander. But he's illuminated like a Christmas tree. You can see all the detail in his spacesuit. And the directly illuminated surface behind him, behind the lander, is not overexposed, which you would expect it to be in a photograph. Because the difference in illumination between the directly illuminated surface and the shadow area of the lander should be too great for a film to record. Photographic film has a quite a wide latitude, but it doesn't have that wide a range of latitudes. So that was one of the first things I noticed. Where was the illumination to make Buzz Aldrin look like a Christmas tree coming from? Oh, we're told. Oh, it's it's the reflective surface of the moon. And I discovered that it's not the reflective surface of the moon. It couldn't be. The reflective surface of the moon, it does reflect light because you could see it in the sky. You look up in the sky and you could see it reflecting sunlight. But it doesn't have enough reflection when it's in shadow to illuminate to that level of uh, intensity. So that that was a, that was a first real problem I had trying to work out because if, if you know what you're looking for in a photograph you can read a photograph like you can read a book you know what all those little squiggles mean so you can make sense of the words and it, and it makes sense as a book because you can you can read it same way you can read a photograph You know where the camera is, you know what it's trying to photograph, you know what type of lens might be being used by the depth of field on it, you know what exposure is likely to be. And I found many, many problems with this because it didn't make sense that somebody in deep shadow, because there are no clouds on the moon, there's no atmosphere, so you get either deep shadow or bright sunlight. It's so bright you can't see the stars, that's why you can't see the stars because The camera isn't capable of recording bright, brightly illuminated surface areas and the relatively dim stars in the background. You won't see them. So let's not have any more. You can't see any stars in the photographs. Of course you can't. Photographically, that's the way it works. So I started looking at more of the photographs. and I started looking in detail at them. And discovered that there were so many discrepancies between what should be occurring. I mean, no, nobody's been to the moon. I'll say that right away. No humans have been to the moon, including the astronauts we're told walked on the moon, on the moon, because there's no evidence that they did. And don't talk about footprints either. There's a rather amusing um, little clip on uh, YouTube posted recently. I think it was originally on TikTok. Somebody filming the moon with his mobile phone and then zooming in and zooming in and zooming in. And you can see the Apollo lander, and he zooms in a bit more. You can see the footprints with a mobile phone. No, it doesn't work that way. There are no footprints of men on the moon because nobody got there. But I understand, Marcus,
1: I understand that we wouldn't be able to see photographs with stars, and I've actually never asked that question, but could the astronauts see the stars? And I believe they said that they couldn't.
3: Well, they did say that. That was in the famous um, press conference after Apollo 11. Right. And uh, it was Patrick Moore, who's a a UK uh, astronomer, Quite quite a famous one. He's passed on now, but he asked the question during that press conference, could you see stars despite the solar corona? And the solar corona is the uh, area around the sun, which you see during an eclipse, and they said, "No, we don't. We did. We couldn't see any stars." Well, of course, you can see stars if you if you're looking for them. You can see stars at night here on Earth. We just look out the window, and you can see all the stars you want to. If you're in space, you'd see many more stars because there's no atmosphere to distort them. So, what he was doing, saying that, I don't know. It it didn't make sense. And you could, of course, photograph stars if you were on the moon by pointing your camera up at the stars and exposing for that particular level of light. But if you're going to include the directly illuminated surface, no, you won't get stars in the photograph.
1: And speaking of that first press conference, which uh, took place three weeks after they allegedly returned, what was your impression when you saw that and studying it through the years, I still can't comprehend how the biggest accomplishment for humankind had that reaction from the three astronauts.
3: That's right. Yeah, it was a very strange reaction. I mean, obviously, when I when I first watched that, uh, it was recorded on August the twelfth, nineteen sixty nine. That press conference, because they had to spend time in quarantine after they came back from the moon, in case they brought any lunar germs with them. I suppose that quarantine was discontinued because they found there weren't any lunar germs. But it was, I mean, these are three men who had achieved one of the greatest scientific achievements of mankind to land on another planetary body. And they looked like they were at a funeral. They really did not look excited about it, having achieved that. And people say, well, they they were astronauts, they were pilots. But they were still human, they would still recognize their achievement as being something really quite special. But no, that's not how it came across. It came across as they were rather embarrassed about the whole thing. I don't know what was going on, whether pressure was being brought, because if they hadn't landed on the moon, and here they were saying, oh, we landed on the moon and and we could see Earth and all the rest of it. If that hadn't actually happened the way we were told, yes, they would be embarrassed. And because they weren't trained actors, they were probably having difficulty hiding it. But then you think
1: they had three weeks to rehearse that moment? If they rehearsed the, the, the faking of the moon, it took time, right? And they were prepared. They were allegedly quarantined. But three weeks to prepare for that moment, if they, you're going to perpetuate a hoax, finish it the right way. Because if we present these three heroes, everybody looks at them as... Patriots, heroes that, you know, put the United States on top of the space race. And all of a sudden, you look like uh, you just came from your dad's funeral. And, and, and you're looking down, somber. Why do not just rehearse it the day before? I mean, look at all the people that high five whenever there's a space shuttle or there's some kind of debris being launched, you know, in Cape Canaveral. Why couldn't the, these astronauts be rehearsing the same thing?
3: Exactly. That's a good point. Why, why couldn't they at least show enthusiasm basically for all the people who had supported them? I mean, the American people really did go full on, full on with the Apollo landings. They were really enthusiastic about it. And here were three men who had achieved what was considered by many people to be impossible. They'd achieved it live on television, don't forget. Why couldn't they just be enthusiastic for everybody who'd supported them? As you say, you know, if – If you win the Super Bowl, you're going to be wildly enthusiastic about it because it's an achievement of a a long season of sport. And you're going to be very, very proud of it. And here these men were, supported by the 400,000 people who who worked on it. And what's going on?
1: Well, the taxpayers footed the $150 billion bill, in, I guess, in a couple of years ago. That's when I calculated it in today's money. And the least you could do is at least give him a smile and say we were so happy to to have done this for humanity, but that, that even didn't happen. But there's something that you told me yesterday when we were talking, and, and I didn't know this. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of our listeners don't know it. Folks, if I asked you, do you know where Neil Armstrong is buried? Would you know? Just take a moment and, 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 and think. Yeah, he's probably buried uh, alongside Gus Grissom in the, uh, the uh, Arlington National Cemetery but that's not the case. His cremains, because he was cremated, went into the sea, the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. Why do you think that we don't know a lot about this, Marcus?
3: Yeah. No, Neil Armstrong is buried at sea off the coast of Florida. There are pictures of it happening, the pictures of the ceremony was attended by his family, obviously, and a lot of uh, NASA personnel. Um. I don't know why he chose a naval burial, which is what it was. Maybe it's because he's a naval flyer in his early career. He flew in Korea as a pilot, and um, maybe he decided that that was how he wanted to be buried, at sea, off the coast of Florida. Not, as you would expect, alongside Gus Grissom at Arlington National Cemetery, which is where all prominent Americans are buried. Presidents are buried there. Charles Lindbergh's buried there. Gus Grissom buried there. Several other astronauts are buried there, but not Neil Armstrong. It's a bit strange, that's all.
1: Do you see that happening a lot? I mean, of course, during World War II, there were a lot of attacks in Navy vessels, and uh, you see a lot of, you know, sea burials. But people like Neil Armstrong, naval officers, do you see them choosing to be buried at sea?
3: I don't think it's very common. In fact, I don't think I've heard of many others. Um, It's obviously something which a naval, somebody who served in the Navy can request. I imagine anybody can request it. They may get turned down. But Neil Armstrong requested a naval sea burial. Uh, It's his choice. It's his decision. Maybe he didn't want a fuss to be made about him. But he's one of the most famous Americans in the 20th century. It just seems a little bit off-key, a little bit odd. It's another of those anomalies which come up.
1: Why a recluse? I mean, we, we, we know that he was a recluse. He did not want to grant interviews. As I mentioned to you before, in 1974, I believe it was, he was coming to my town in in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in a cruise ship. And uh, me being a fan of, of space and NASA and so on, I was there in front of the cruise ship when he was arriving. And the media was there waiting for him to come out and say a few words. He never came out of the... Of the ship, uh,
3: that's strange. That is very
1: strange. True.
3: Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd obviously spent a lot of time going around the world talking to presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, heads of government, because he was being promoted as this unique figure, the first man on the moon. And there are books written about him, photographs of him. Well, there aren't many photographs of him on the moon. There are actually two altogether, but he was promoted as that. Uh, NASA had a very, very good publicity department in those days. <laughs> but it was strange that he would not want to come out and just greet people, just wave from the deck, or if that's what he wanted to do. Maybe he was just fed up with all the circus that had been going on, and he wanted to get back to his um, career as a university teacher, university lecturer.
1: Let me ask you now about your reaction to NASA's Artemis program and what you have seen so far. And by the way, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the moon and twin sister of Apollo. What's your reaction to what we're seeing with Artemis?
3: Uh, My overall reaction from what I've seen so far is incredible disappointment. I was expecting a much better show. All right, Artemis had a few problems to start with. You know, they had the the hydrogen leaks when they were trying to to put the fuel on board. Hang on a minute. hydrogen. Has been used on the space shuttle since it launched in 1981. How come they're now having problems getting art getting hydrogen into what is in effect a bigger version of the space shuttle? So that all that there were three cancelled launches, and then eventually got it off, and it was at night, couldn't see a thing. And this thing, I mean, all you could see is the great plume of the exhaust, which is the solid fuel boosters. Because that's all that's all Artemis is. It's just a big central fuel tank and two solid fuel boosters on the side, They're the, the white tubes on the side, and then the Orion capsules at the top. But we didn't see any of that. We just saw it launch. We presumed it was taking off. Quite why it had to go off at that particular time, 1.30 in the morning, Florida time. I don't know why it had to go off at that point. And then when it gets to the moon, we're told, is going to fly over the Apollo landing sites. Oh, guess what? They're in darkness too. I <laughs> can't see a thing. It's either very, very bad planning, which I think is more likely to be the case, or they were so desperate to launch the thing that they get it off as soon as they could. It was being delayed because of the hurricanes. I mean, this is hurricane season in Florida, so you're going to get the odd hurricane around. But surely that can be identified and planned for. If they're going to make a big share of it, and when it was first being launched, there were 100,000 people waiting to see it launch. They were obviously paying a lot of money to stay in hotels, hire cars, travel to Florida to watch the launch of Artemis. Didn't happen. And when the second launch came around, we had the same problem. Hydrogen leaks on between the tanks and the rocket itself. You call
1: hydrogen Houdini, right?
3: Hydrogen's Houdini. It's very hard to restrain hydrogen. It's the smallest atom of them all. It takes a great deal to to make sure it doesn't escape. Which is why hydrogen is not a very successful fuel to carry around in motor cars because it'll escape. So it's wh- also why highly- is NASA
1: still using hydrogen in the rockets? When I'm just going to pick on Elon Musk, SpaceX. He's using methane. Methane mm-hmm. is uh, also easier to handle and store then hydrogen methane takes up much less volume than hydrogen, so the tanks can be smaller and lighter. Why is NASA always operating in the 1950s? The
3: the question I, I don't know the answer to. I wish I did. I suspect that a lot of engineers now at NASA, well, there are no engineers at NASA now who were there when Apollo was operating. So there's nobody with the historical knowledge of what they did with Apollo so they basically starting from from scratch, starting from first principles. And the first principle of rockets is don't use hydrogen. It just gets out. It, it escapes from everywhere. That's why I called it the Houdini gas, to escape from any restraint. But uh, you asked what my reaction to uh, Artemis was. I was very disappointed. It's just not what I expected, that it launched at night. It didn't overfly the Apollo 11 landing site we were told it was going to do, because that was in darkness as well. And now what's it doing? It's it's in an elliptical orbit around the moon. And then it's going to come back. And when it comes back, this, this is the point. <laughs> in December 2014, the Orion capsule, which is on top of the Artemis rocket now, the Orion capsule was test-launched in December 2014. It flew out 3,500 miles from Earth and came back again, to test the heat shield, which nearly failed. And it's been, what are we talking, eight years since that happened, that's the length of the Apollo missions from start to finish, and all they managed to do is to launch the capsule once. When they tried to uh, restore the heat shield on Orion, they were using a, a stainless steel heat shield originally, which very nearly failed. If it had totally failed, it would have had the same result as the uh, Columbia space shuttle. It would have burnt up in the atmosphere. Fortunately, this didn't. There weren't any people on board on the test launch of December 2014, but now they've gone back to the original formula for the heat shield of Apollo, which was called AVCOT 5061, and they're using that on Orion. Now, that's not been tested yet. And Orion is a bigger capsule than Apollo, so there's going to be a greater heat buildup. The inverse square law applies. You come come back to Earth from the Moon, if that's where they are, you come back to Earth at the same speed you leave Earth at to reach the Moon. Escape velocity, which is 25,000 miles an hour. That's why they need three sections on the Artemis rocket to launch it, not just into Earth orbit, but to to the moon. So that's the third stage which gets it to the moon. Now, coming back 25,000 miles an hour, spacecraft don't have brakes. You've got to use the Earth's atmosphere to slow you down. The Earth's atmosphere starts at about 60 miles up. It's called the Kármán line, K-A-R-M-A-N, named after Theodore von Kármán, who was a NASA engineer, who decided that it would be useful to have a starting point for space and he decided that 60 miles up which is 100 kilometers would be a good place to have space starting in fact space doesn't space starts lower down at about 50 miles anyway if you're coming back in a spacecraft the only way you can slow down is using the the atmosphere of the earth to build up and remove the kinetic energy of of your spacecraft and that generates heat that's why you need a heat shield to protect the capsule, in this case, Orion, and anybody who happened to be inside it. In fact, there are two dummies inside Orion at the moment. They're called Helga and Zohar, and they're testing for radiation levels. It's think they'd know what the radiation levels were by now, wouldn't you? They've sent nine Apollo missions through the Van Allen radiation belts into deep space, but now they've got to do it again. So so. Helga and Zohar are the names of the dummies that they're using. They're crash test dummies. And one of them has female attributes. So obviously they're going to send women to the moon as well, which is good. So they've got all this testing. And as Orion comes back, it has to slow down. And it comes in at a very, very acute angle to the Earth's surface, six degrees or thereabouts. If it comes in too too sharply, it will burn up and crash it comes in at too shallow an angle, it will bounce off the atmosphere and go into orbit around Earth, or maybe the Sun. But it won't land. So it has to come in at a very, very precise angle, just over six degrees, so that it will then slow down over about 1,200 miles of traveling through the Earth's atmosphere before it slows down enough for the parachutes to be able to be deployed to lower it down into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego we it's supposed to land.
1: That is really strange. Really? Yeah.
3: I, I wonder what's going on, because unless somebody's actually listening in to what we're saying, they wouldn't know what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I'm not joking. When I say this, I'm not saying this to increase my listenership or to impress it upon the listeners. You know, we get disconnected once in a while, but not like this, especially when you're in the middle of a very... Important answer, right? Yeah, so, yeah. anyway, let's proceed.
3: Let's proceed. Okay, let's just carry on and see how we get on. And if anybody's listening and doesn't like what we're talking about, please tell us. Ask the question. Don't just disconnect us. Or maybe maybe there's another explanation. There's a solar particle event taking place, and it's affecting all electricity transmission. Could be.
1: Okay. But, that's, that's uh, yeah, we can we can actually attribute it to that. Yeah, sure.
3: Yeah, we could do. But then seeing as most um, uh, broadband cables go under the sea anyway, I don't think it'll affect them. But never mind.
1: <laughs> not, not satellites, right? Because look at Nixon. By the way, I don't mean to deviate, but Nixon was able to conduct a telephone call from the White House to the moon. But here in the year 2022, if I go 10 miles away from home into the wilderness— There's no cell phone signal at all.
3: Well, there's a thing. Just think of the technology improvement in the last 50-odd years. Nixon obviously had it sorted back back in the day. Exactly. There we go.
1: Now, let me ask you this. I'm not sure if you finished your statement, but I'm thinking of this. You know, in 2015, NASA gave us the million-mile moonshot. You know what I'm talking about, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: In July 2015, uh, the camera aboard the Deep Space Climate Observatory captured shots of the moon as it moved in front of the sunlit side of our planet. The series of test images were captured by NASA's Earth polychromatic imaging camera. Epic. So my question is, I saw the, I don't know if it's a composite of several pictures that look almost like a video, but you see the size of the moon and you see the size of Earth. So my question is, how come now, even with Artemis, we see the moon just like we saw in 1972, this lighty, tiny, little marble, and they had not even made it to the moon yet. So yep. why can't they make up their minds? Is, it, is the moon small, medium, or large? <laughs>
3: That's a good point. Uh, compared to the Earth, the moon is relatively small. It's about it's 27% of the size of the Earth. In fact, if you, if you look at it on a map, the, the moon would cover continental America, and that's about it, I and mean, that's how big it is. It, it's, it's a relatively small body. What's interesting is that the that astronomers on Earth could take better photographs of the Moon from their back gardens than we see from the Artemis program. I don't get it, and it seems they've mixed the front and the far side. It's, it's, it's not called the back side, it's called the far side of the Moon, the bit we can't see. The dark side of the moon, by the way, is the, the album. Pink
1: light. Yeah.
3: Great album. It's the far side of the moon because we can't see it because the Earth is tidally locked to the Earth, which is probably a good thing, and uh, we can only see one face of the moon, keeps one face towards us at all times. So what's going on behind it? What's going on on the far side? That's a story for another day. But the it's been photographed by orbiting spacecraft, and allegedly by the Apollo missions, but they were too close to really get the whole view in. We know what the far side of the moon looks like, and there's one very prominent crater on the far side of the moon called the Tchaikovsky Crater. It's on the lower left-hand side. It's well over 100 miles in diameter, and it's very easily identified because in the center of this crater, is what looks like a small island in the middle of a dark sea the uh, Tchaikovsky crater is not a regular circular crater it's it's got very jagged edges but it's very easily identifiable if you know what you're looking for in the same way that on the near side of the moon there's a very easily identifiable crater called copernicus which is on the left-hand side of from left-hand side of center And you can easily identify it because it has what's called radial um, or rays of ejector material coming out from it, presumably after it was hit by a meteor or something. I don't know. To be honest, I don't think it's an impact crater. I think it's an electrical discharge crater. When, When the Earth was being formed, there were planets passing, Venus specifically, was passing much closer to Earth and the Moon, because the Earth and the Moon are relatively close together in astronomical terms. If two planetary bodies pass close to each other, there will be electrical discharge from a higher potential to a lower potential. And these were described in historical documents as um, the wars in the skies. The gods were fighting. Electrical discharges between planetary objects would appear to be like that, and they would be very powerful electrical discharges. Anyway, that's my theory about the the flat-bottomed lunar craters. There are in- impact craters on the moon. They're relatively small, and they are saucer-shaped because you can you can work out what a crater will look like. the The kinetic energy of a meteor, an asteroid, or whatever it is hitting the moon will create a crater that is eight times wider than its depth. It's physics. You can you can easily identify it. And there's a crater on Earth created by a meteor impact called Meteor Crater in Arizona. Right. And it it's exactly that. It's eight times wider than it is deep. That's the physics of a crater, of an impact crater.
1: Allegedly, the Apollo astronauts practiced there.
3: They did, yes. They they, they practiced all over. They they practiced in meteor craters, so they'd have some idea of what big craters would look like. They didn't go anywhere near a crater that size, except Hadley Rill on Apollo 15. They went to this strange snake-like channel on the moon. The trouble trouble is that they didn't build it the right size.
1: (laughs) They didn't build it the right size. If they have to make craters on Earth to film it. Let's theoretically think that it was filmed here. Would they be okay. using explosives to create craters to more or less emulate what we see from Earth?
3: Yep, yeah, there is an exact replica, or pretty close to an exact replica, of the Sea of Tranquility at the Apollo landing site recreated on Cinder Lake near Flagstaff in Arizona. You can go and see it today. It's, still, it's a bit de- decrepit now because... Off-road drivers have been using it for practice. But this film of all these craters being created using explosives in Cinder Lake, they used a lot of them. And they produced a very good representation of the Sea of Tranquility. So the astronauts presumably could practice. I don't know what they were going to practice, but uh, they were also in Iceland. They were in Hawaii. They went all over. Now, there's, there's a part of... I think it's Oregon and Washington State, known as Columbia River Basin, which is a volcanic area. The uh, magma from inside the earth extruded out, maybe after an impact. And Columbia River Basin is, has volcanic origins. <clears throat> maybe they practice there as well. But Cinder Lake in Arizona, near Flexstaff in Arizona, yeah, that was deliberately created as a life-size replica of the Sea of Tranquility <clears throat> using explosives. U.S. Geological Survey did it. So, yes, there are images of that being created back in the mid-1960s.
1: This idea that Stanley Kubrick was the one behind the moon landings, or the, the actual filming, do you think that it's not the case? It's his special effects person. His name escapes me.
3: Okay. Stanley Kubrick is always held up as being the person behind the filming of Apollo. If he was, he'd have done a much better job of it, because he was a perfectionist. Now, my view is that the his special effects director
1: Douglas Trumbull
3: <coughs> special effects director, Douglas Trumbull, was quite possibly involved in advising NASA as to how to create the images that they wanted. And they were creating the images that they wanted um, at, what's the Air Force base in New Mexico? Um, Coleman? That's right. Um, Commonal Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, Bart Sabrell has written a book called Moon Man in which he describes meeting the senior security personnel at that base. And he gave, and the security personnel gave Bart Sabrell a list of the people who were attending a particular event, which is the recreation of the lunar landing. And it was attended by President Johnson, Bernard von Braun, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, James Van Allen, after whom the belts are named, and various other people, several astronauts.
1: And let's not forget Robert Emenegger, Bob Emenegger, whom I interviewed in 2009 and everybody knows who he is. He said a lot of things on this program, which he declined or, or denied after. He's the one that had the uh, UFO's past, present, and future, hosted by Rod Serling. And in that uh, TV series, he included 30 seconds of the alleged landing in Holloman Air Force Base. But this individual that Bart Sibrel interviewed, Death Beth Confession, said that Bob Emenegger was one of them filming. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Marcus.
3: It's good to have that piece of information in as well uh, because the filming of the Apollo landing would require a considerable understanding of film technology and film techniques. Now, Douglas Trumbull worked on the special effects, obviously, of 2001 A Space Odyssey with, with Danny Kubrick. He also worked on the special effects of Back to the Future and Blade Runner. Uh, they were all created in Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, not not the more recent film. Nineteen eighty-two, yeah. yeah. used models in the film. Those cities were models, and the, there are there are pictures of uh, special effects directors. I mean, John Dykstra is another one who did the special effects on Star Wars, which are particularly impressive. He might have had a, a hand in it, but there's one problem with filming uh, on the lunar surface where you have reduced gravity. It's one-sixth the gravity of the Earth. Now, if there's one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, if you've got a fit person, and astronauts were pretty fit individuals, they would be able to jump higher than 18 inches. A fit person on Earth, a basketball player or a football player, can jump quite high probably over three feet high, on Earth. So if you reduce the gravitational attraction to one-sixth of that of Earth, a reasonably fit person could jump about 12 feet into the air. It's not rocket science to work it out. So if you're going to portray astronauts on the lunar surface, if they're not on the lunar surface, you're going to try to recreate the environment in which they are supposed to be. For a start... You can put a lot of things onto bits of string or bits of wire, and you can control their movement with a bit of wire. The one thing you can't put onto a bit of wire is the surface material, the soil, the sand. You can't put that on bits of wire. There's too many of them. And there's a very interesting piece of film which compares a beach volleyball player Jumping up, and uh, beach volleyball players can jump reasonably. It's it's not so much the height; it's the fact that they're jumping and they're standing in sand. As they jump, you'll notice if you look at their feet, you'll notice that the sand is raised up by the action of their feet, and it falls back down at the same time as the athlete does. The sand and the athlete land back on the sand at the same time. If you look at the what's called the jump salute sequence on Apollo sixteen. The astronaut jumps up, the soil is raised up, and it falls back almost immediately. And then the astronaut follows a considerable time later, well, a relatively considerable time later, not at the same time. And that is one of the giveaways which couldn't be recreated by just using um, slow motion film. Because if it's filmed on Earth, the sand and the astronaut will behave in the same way. If you're going to fake it, you've got to get everything right. And there is a film that is was released about five years ago. It's called Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors. Now, smoke and Mirrors is a, a, a slang term used in special effects, using smoke and mirrors, used in uh, illusionists do it as well. But this film was it's two hours, 44 minutes long, and it, deconstructs all the technology behind the filming of the Apollo missions trouble is that the narrator of the film, presumably the person who created it, did not wish to be recognized so he disguised his voice unfortunately he disguised it so well you couldn't understand what he was saying well not very easily but people have now um, taken their dialogue and subtitled the film and you can now see it, it's not been viewed by many people because I was one of the first to view it. I saw it when it was first posted up. and I thought, this is fascinating. I didn't understand all that was being shown, but it was the use of optical printers to create the effects required. An optical printer, as the name implies, it, it duplicates photographic film, like a photocopier duplicates pieces of paper. This duplicates photographic film. So you can take your film and maybe create a new piece of film using every third frame on the film. If you're filming at a normal speed, 24 frames per second, it's the normal photographic film speed, if you slow it down, it'll look ridiculous. It'll look jerky and unnatural. So you have to film at a much higher level, 144 frames per second. If you then want to slow it down, you can reduce it down to every sixth frame and it will appear to be at 44 frames per second, 24 frames per second. So these are the, this is the technology that was being identified in this film, Make-Believe Smoke and Mirrors. There are people around who have the, the ability to identify how it was all done. But because people don't want to hear that it was fake, and there are probably people out there saying, oh, Marcus Allen, he's ridiculous, I don't know what he's talking about, idiot. Oh, that's fine. You want to be rude, you can, you can be rude, but look at the information. And if you think man has landed on the lunar surface, the name, the 12 named astronauts who allegedly landed on the lunar surface provide the evidence that they have done so. That's all I ask. Prove me wrong when I say no human has landed on the lunar surface.
1: Marcus, I have, I have friends from a long time that discovered that I do what I do now, and they listen to some of my moon hoax interviews, and they unfriended me. They they just said, how dare you? My father worked in, in, in Houston, and my father worked in, in Cape Canaveral throughout the whole time from 68 to 72. How dare you tell me that we didn't go to the moon? How many people work in silos where they don't know? It's so compartmentalized that they don't know what their, the other cubicle is doing, Marcus. Exactly. Exactly.
3: That was how it was done. That was how – it, it wasn't keeping people quiet. It wasn't hiding some secret. And A, a lot of people say, well, 400,000 people worked on the Apollo program in the mid-1960s. That's true. They did all over America, from Washington State where Boeing were building the uh, rockets down to uh, California, where Rocket Dime were building the engines, Across to Texas, where the uh, mission control was, up to Connecticut, where the spacesuits were being built, to New York, where Grumman were making the lunar landers. They were all across America. Now, if you have ever worked for a big company, which I have, I've worked for Toyota in the UK, I didn't know what the board of directors were discussing. It wasn't my business to know. I didn't know what was going on in the dealerships, 200 dealerships in the UK, representing Toyota. It wasn't my job to know that. I would be told what I needed to know. And this is what happened. So the people making the spacesuits had no need to know what the people making the rocket engines were doing. They were 2,000 miles away for a start, and they had no need to know. They would all see it come together when the thing launched from Florida. And if you lived in California, you'd watch it on television, and you'd say, I saw it take off. It must be real. Because if it's on television, there's a degree of authenticity behind seeing a television picture.
1: And by the way, it was Playtex, uh, well, Division of Playtex that made the spacesuits. Did they factor in any gold or any material that could help the astronauts go through the Van Allen belt?
3: No, no, they didn't. It's a question I've asked. I actually wrote to... uh, Uh, company making the spacesuits Hamilton Standard are making the uh, um, backpacks as well and I said to them what protection did you build into the spacesuits to ensure the astronauts could survive the radiation levels we know exist in space and they said we built it according to, to the specifications supplied to us by NASA you'd better address your question to them so I did I'm still waiting for the answer
1: Well, I saw an answer from NASA, and they're saying, well, it's the same as fire walking. You just, if if you you walk through coal that's on fire, you might not feel it that much. That's what they call thousands of kilometers of Van Allen Belt.
3: (laughs) It doesn't work the same way. Heat is a very different concept to radiation. So that's basically dodging the question. The... The problem with radiation is that it penetrates everything, especially galactic cosmic rays coming from deep space. It penetrates everything. That's what it's there for. And uh, a lot of the astronauts said that uh, they saw what they described as stars in their eyes. That would be the effect of radiation. It would hit the optic nerve in the eye and trigger a slight reaction. And you would see it as a, as a flash of light. But radiation is lethal. I mean, humans are not designed to to operate in a radiation environment. That's why, that's why we take so much precaution against it. If radiation is so harmless to humans, why don't they just send a few um, people into the reactors at Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or Fukushima wearing... Astronaut spacesuits, because they protected the astronauts from the radiation, didn't they? No, nobody would dare do that. It would be a stupid thing to do. But it's a reasonable question to ask, because radiation is radiation. Gamma rays, X-rays, no matter what they are, they're the same wherever you are. And we're told there's going to be uh, some solar particle events quite soon, sort of outbursts from the sun of excess radiation, which occurs on on a reasonable cycle. We can, ident- we, we, can, we can identify when it's going to happen, but we can't do very much about it if it hits Earth. If a, if a burst of radiation from the sun hits Earth, we're toast because our, our computer systems would be harmed, satellites would be destroyed, or the electronics would be destroyed. Therefore, they wouldn't work. Therefore, GBS, GPS would stop working. Therefore everybody would get lost. Because they can't read maps anymore, so it would have serious effects on Earth. But we don't know what protection to take because we haven't examined it. And in fact, there's a, a good example of this. One of the first identified, um, the first people to identify the effect of solar radiation or sunbust was a guy called Richard Carrington, after whom the event, the Carrington, Carrington event, event yeah. Think. 1859, when radio operators, um, telegraph, uh, tele- yeah, t- uh, uh, telegraph operators, suddenly found that they could actually transmit without being connected to batteries, because the energy in the in the wires was sufficient to send the signal. Fortunately, there weren't too many electric uh, appliances around at the time of the Carrington event, 1859. But if it happened now. 170-odd well, years later, we'd be in serious trouble unless we take precautions to protect our electrical infrastructure. And you may recall back in, I think it was 1989, there was a major power outage in northwestern America. And that was the result of the same thing, that uh, a solar event uh, short-circuited out a lot of the transformers in the electrical grid system. It took a long time to get them all back again.
1: According so, to re- Dr. Paul Laviolette, it would take about 50 years to build all the transformers to put the grid back on if another carrying to an event were to happen today.
3: Yeah, exactly. It would take a long time. We're, we're not taking precautions against it. We're not saying this is what we have to do to ensure that our electrical grid system can main- maintain its integrity in the face of that sort of storm. It's it's a very sad reflection on the leadership of Western countries, that they're not taking this seriously. They don't appear to be taking it seriously. Maybe there are secret plans that we know nothing about. Sure, there are a lot of secret plans out there, but let's concentrate on the ones we know about.
1: Marcus, we have to take a break, but I want to ask you one question and I'll get your answer on the other side. The Apollo 11, I'm just speaking on the Apollo 11, not the rest for now, but they stayed on the moon for 21 hours and 36 minutes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the moon on the shade is about negative 184 Celsius or negative 300 -300 Fahrenheit. And on the sunny side, when the sun comes along, is 127 Celsius or 260 Fahrenheit. Did the lunar module have some kind of temperature control to keep those astronauts alive with those uh, temperature differentials?
3: Good question. They didn't have air conditioning, that's for sure. But they did have something that allegedly kept them cool enough to operate in. Maybe we'll cover Maybe we'll cover that.
1: Excellent. How can people buy the book, The Apollo it's Moon Hoax?
3: Amazon.com, The Apollo Moon Hoax, The Real Evidence, by Marcus Allen, that's me, and Trevor Weaver, who's my co-author. We put together a list of all the objections to what we're saying now how could 400,000 people keep a a secret, is one of them. Well, they didn't keep a secret because there was no secret to keep. But we, we look at all the information that we have accumulated over quite a long period of time about how all the objections to we didn't land on the moon can be handled. That's what we do in this book. We look at it in 26 different chapters they're quite short chapters, a couple of pages each. And we just look at what was said. Oh, you couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. You could do this. You could do that. And we just provide the information in short, easily digestible, bite-sized chapters. It's only just 250-odd pages. So if you want to know the real story of Apollo, this will give you good information to start from. Trevor Weaver's written three other books on the subject, so you can look at those as well. And maybe we'll cover the story of Apollo 13. That's yep. an interesting story.
1: Definitely. You told you told me the story yesterday, and I definitely want you to share it. Uh, your <laughs> website, what are your websites again, Marcus?
3: Right. You go to NexusMagazine.com if you want to contact me. Uh, just go to the contact section or to our list. That's A-U-L-I-S dot com. It's a UK-based site. Again, you contact me through there. Uh, there's several articles on there that uh, I've contributed to. There's probably enough reading there for you to keep you busy till the other side of the new year. It's a it's a big site. It's got a lot of good information from people who know what they're discussing, know what they're talking about. You can also see a copy of the film Sm- Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors in their film section, and also. Um, the other very, very good film, which was created by the authors of Dark Moon, that's David Percy and Mary Bennett, the DVD of that book is called What Happened on the Moon? And the other the other film worth checking out is American Moon by Massimo Mazzucco. It's an Italian filmmaker who's put together a very, very interesting film examining all the objections to We Didn't Land on the Moon. So... Aulis.com, a-u-l-i-s nexusmagazine.com if you want to see some of the stuff that I've put that's been posted onto YouTube go to Apollo Detectives on YouTube YouTube channel called Apollo Detectives and if you go on there you'll see over 50 videos that have been created about talks that I've given interviews I've done presentations I've put out been well-illustrated by Robert Williams, who uh, runs the channel Apollo Detectives. So if you want to see that, um, check it out. You won't be disappointed. You may be upset. And it's, it's it's not my intention or any of the people contributing to this to upset anybody, it's just to try to get to the truth. Because if NASA stands for never a straight answer, there's no point in asking them anything. They won't give you a good answer. So we have to ferret it out discover what the evidence is, produce it ourselves. And because of the internet now, we can do it on YouTube, we can present the information. A lot of them have been shadow banned and reduced, so it's very hard to find them. But go onto Apollo Detectives on YouTube, which has got industrial level security behind it, so it's not gonna get taken down anytime soon. And you'll see a lot of people discussing it, a lot of people talking about it. And Robert Williams, Scott Henderson, myself, we have regular weekly discussions about the latest developments. We've talked about Artemis and how disappointed we are with that, as are a lot of people. It's noticeable. If you look on the official NASA uh, channels and you look at the comments below, 90 percent are negative. What are you doing, NASA? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you showing us things? It's, it's as if people have suddenly woken up to the fact that Artemis, which is supposed to be Apollo 2.0, well, Orion is Apollo 2.0, but Artemis is the program which is supposed to return humans to the moon as directed in December 2019 by President Trump. Well, let's stop it, it right there so we
1: can continue in part
3: two. Okay, let's do that.
1: And then okay. folks, as a, part of the truth-seeking process, we must learn what we've learned in the past and I know that for some people who are new to the subject it might be very disappointing to know that what you thought was true for decades is not but would you rather live in truth or live in a lie and by the way Nexus Magazine a great publication that discusses all the subjects we discuss here my special guest today is Marcus Allen one more hour to come and a lot deeper this is Mel Hustlerick and you are listening to Veritas don't go anywhere
2: Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video, click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview you don't want to miss it thank you for listening to veritas because you don't want to believe you want to know
0: the part of yourself to the sea.